0: Boston Marathon nothing personal word of the day it's Monday April 19th 2022 yes we are delayed but I've got an excuse I just got off a train from Boston this morning I got on a five o'clock train I got so many stories coca I don't even want to start let me go back to the beginning I was born in February of 1968. (laughs) that's too far no that'll take too long all right let's fast forward to a two weeks ago no no no. let's go back a little further all right i'm ready now coca all right here we go ready and four six nine boston marathon yeah i know you've heard it before we're late today because i'm late but i'm showered if you're on nothing personal with david sampson youtube channel i did have time to actually shower because you would not have wanted to see me because yesterday I was in Boston to be a crew member for the most special, incredible person and family and race in history. So here's the background. The background is there is a PR guy named Matt Roebuck. Matt Roebuck worked for the Marlins and I worked with him for over a decade, I think if not longer. And one year in 2009, I wanted to do the Boston Marathon. And of course, I wasn't gonna qualify for the Boston Marathon, so I wanted to be introduced because, hey, I'm the president of the Marlins. I want a connection with someone with the Boston Marathon. So I spread the word and Matt Roebuck says, hey, I know Dave McGilvery, he's the race director. Maybe he can help. So I sent an email saying, hi, I'd like to introduce myself. I would like to raise money for charity and get a few entries into the boston marathon in 2009 and he responded i know matt roebuck that's amazing that's great you have to raise you know whatever many thousands of dollars so one bib right and i said well it's funny dave we've never met but if you don't ask this is a great lesson for anything in life if you don't ask it's guaranteed that you're not going to get so i said actually i'm looking for about 10 bibs and he responded with a question mark. And that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship that has been going on for 13 years. 10 of us did the Boston Marathon, including Mike Hill in 2009 and a bunch of other people. And the thing about the Boston Marathon is you have to qualify. It's sort of like the Ironman in Hawaii in Kona, where I did that, but as a media athlete, where they just filmed me you know, struggling for 15 hours and 36 minutes. As long as I agreed to do the show without Troutwig, and I said, of course, I have no problem doing that. I'm ha- Just give me a bib a bib for the Ironman. So I trained for a year and did that. And I just wanted to keep doing things. So the Boston Marathon is something I could never qualify for, much like the Y Ironman. So I get this bib, we're, and to do Boston, it's very hilly. So you go from Hopkinton all the way to Boston. It's a point-to-point, 26.2 miles. It's a brutal course. There's something called heartbreak hill we'll get back to that at mile 20 which just breaks your heart it sucks the life out of you you finish that and you still have a 10k to go 6.2 miles and you're pretty sure that you can't feel your legs and the ultimate nightmare of boston is that the end of the race is mostly downhill when your quads are shattered and all you want to do is go uphill which sounds totally counterintuitive because running uphill is brutal unless you've been running downhill runners or any athletes, you probably know what I'm talking about. So in Florida, where I was living in 2009, there are no hills. The only place you can train is on the Key Biscayne Bridge, which I did a few training runs there. But up where I lived in Fort Lauderdale, there was a a park that was really an old garbage dump. So you could run up and down a garbage dump in Western Broward. And that is where people train, do hill training. So I'm there one day doing a training uh, uh, day with Mike Hill, who at the time was the general manager of the Marlins. We were working with Larry Beinfest, who was the president of baseball ops at that time. And we're doing a workout up and down hills. It's 2009, so I'm 13 years younger than I am now. So I'm pretty young, I'm 41 years old, feeling pretty good about everything. Following the Hal Higdon training program per day every day didn't miss a workout so Mike Hill and I are struggling to do interval Hill training and someone is there and it's a a woman and a man and they're working out and they recognize us and they say hey what are you guys training for and we said oh the Boston Marathon and without skipping a beat they said he said it was the him not the her he said Charity? (laughs) Do you get that? Because of course we wouldn't qualify because we were huffing and puffing. We don't look like runners. We don't act like runners. I think we had a cooler of beer at the bottom of the hill. During the workout. I mean, it was just a total hilarious nightmare. So, that was the first Boston Marathon I ever did. We finished. We did it with a guy named Harris who finished with a, a face full of salt. When you finish the Boston Marathon, you have such an issue that, that the salt is like calcified on your face and you look like Santa Claus. He went right to the medical tent from the finish line and we never saw him again. We went back to the hotel. We started drinking and eating pizza and we were like, hey, where's Siskind? anyway i digress so i did a couple of other marathons and dave mcgilvery and i got to know each other over the years and in 2018 i asked him to join team hold the plane team hold the plane was the 17 of us who did the world marathon challenge which is seven marathons in seven days on seven continents and dave mcgilvery is one of the most accomplished runners in history he's run across the country he's run from up the coasts i mean he's done everything, raised millions of dollars for charity. He runs his birthday every year. So when he turned 40, he ran 40 miles. When he turned 50, he ran 50 miles. When he turned 60, he ran 60 miles. It's called the birthday club. It's totally asinine. And then he always says it's his game, his rules. So when he turned 65, he did a combo run bike because yeah, but he does like 50 miles a day. He's just this incredible guy. And one of the things he does as race director is the race in Boston starts in the morning there's 30,000 runners and then at night he goes from the finish line in downtown Boston on Boylston Street he goes all the way back to Hopkinton and runs the marathon from Hopkinton to Boston after the marathon's done he's got uh, a police escort and he's got a crew with him led by the unbelievably gracious man Ron Kramer Side note, Ron Kramer and Dave McGilvery were my race directors when I ran the double marathon to honor the workers for Marlins Park in April of 2012. They arranged the whole race. They coordinated with the police escort all the way from Pompano down to the stadium Marlins Park. So I've been working with them and knowing them for years. So we do the marathon challenge and in Antarctica – I was able to run the marathon, the first marathon of the seven I ran with Dave McGilvery. And he's a much faster runner than I am. He can run a three hour marathon and my career best one time in New York, I did 357. And that took an amount of training that I'm simply not able to do, not because I'm lazy, because I'm old, which is no excuse because older people run faster. Hence, they can actually qualify for Boston and not need a charity slot. But again, I digress. I guess some people are runners, some people are not. So we are running the Antarctica Marathon, me and Dave, and we cross the finish line and he raises his arms and he says, I just got a PR. And a PR means a personal record, like a personal best. And I said to him while shivering cold in Antarctica, knowing we had six marathons in front of us, we did it in like 4.50 or 4.52 and i said what are you talking about and he said david that's the slowest marathon i've ever run it's a pr negatively and we had a good laugh about that we then finished doing it's so weird when there's no studio audience to even smile when coca is totally silent no idea probably not even listening anyway it was funny so the next year dave invited a bunch of people from our team called team hold the Plane to run with him at night after the Boston Marathon. And so what that run is, you go with him to Hopkinton at about three o'clock in the afternoon and you just start running, but you run at his pace. So if he wants to go fast, you better go fast. If he's going slow and walking, you go slow and walk. It's his run. You are there to support him and you are honored because only five or six people do this per year and you are honored to be a part of this race. So my plan for 2022 is that a bunch of us were invited to run with him because this was Dave McGilvery's 50th consecutive Boston Marathon. Just think about that for one second. 50 years in a row, he has crossed the finish line of the Boston Marathon. It's unheard of. And not only is he the race director, but he runs a foundation called the DMSE Foundation. If you're looking to give money away to, to charity, they do unbelievable work. When all of the running shut down during COVID and during, during the lockdown, he actually changed his whole business to uh, helping with testing and helping the, the, the city of Boston figure out COVID. He, just an amazing person. So cut two. he invites us to do the race this year. And I'm in. You don't say no to Dave McGilvery when he invites you, but he was doing it a little differently because it was his 50th. He was going to do a five-hour pace, and there were going to be 30 of us, and the 30 people were people who meant something in his life. People who were accomplished runners, people who had run cross-country. There was a guy who's about to run 50 miles a day in 50 states over 50 days, like 50 miles in a different state each day. There's a guy who's about to run across country. There were a bunch of people from the World Marathon Challenge, and there were his kids, of course. He's got five kids, uh, three younger kids, Luke, Ellie, and Chloe, who were there. Luke is an amazing runner. He's gonna be better than Dave, actually. They're all Survivor fans. We got to talk about Survivor for a while. So the way it works is they have a van, and it's like a sweeper van. The van has everybody's water, They have Gatorade, they have some cookies, but you really bring your own stuff to support yourself during the marathon. And the van stops every mile and a half and you run each mile and a half and then you stop. It's not a real water station, but you figure you can stop and get water, et cetera. But sometimes Dave stops for 10 seconds. Sometimes he has to take a phone call from the media or a phone call from someone in his company because something's going on in Boston, whatever the case may be. So I was getting ready but I didn't train the way I should have. And I disrespected the marathon in a way that only comes from having done the world marathon challenge where you know you can just wake up and run a marathon no matter what, because your body can do it. It's muscle memory. So I was not able to complete my long runs. I would go out to run 18 miles and I could only finish 12 because my hip hurt, my knees hurt, my quads hurt. And I was just lazy and it was making me more angry. Have you ever had that when you're procrastinating something, you know, you have to do it, but you're just, you're not doing it. And then you feel worse about yourself. And then you dig yourself a deeper hole. And then all of a sudden I go to a doctor and I told you on a recent show about this. And the doctor said, Hey, um, you can't run the marathon because we have to get rid of this cancer you have. And I said, you know, what about after the Boston marathon? And they said, no, she said, do it now. It's a a woman, Dr. McGuire, actually do it now. And so she dug it out. And so I called Dave and said, I'm going to be there to support you. I will ride in the crew van, but I can't run the race. And he said, I just want you there with me to share this moment. So I get to Boston on Sunday, take the train and Boston during marathon time is, it, it just overtakes the city go to the expo, and and you just feel like you're a part of something, but wait a minute, I'm not running. How do I feel about not running? I've never gone to a marathon weekend and not run the marathon. This was going to be my 26th marathon, and I wasn't running. And it it gave me that feeling in my stomach uh, of FOMO, just amazing FOMO. So I decide after Sunday night, drinking, to eating, Monday – while the race is going on having like a mimosa brunch i say you know what i I gotta give this a try and i brought running clothes jic because you have to i brought the nipple band-aids the and ointment which avoids chafing all the things necessary to in theory run a marathon and i had the hubris to think that i could do a five-hour marathon without having properly trained and having not run in two straight weeks and having given up the thought of it so I was not in the right headspace. So we get to the start at 3 p.m. and I look like I'm ready to run and Dave says to me, I I thought you weren't running. I said, Dave, I I gotta do this with you. I wanna do this. He said, all right, we're gonna take it nice and slow. We got this. He starts out like he's out of a fricking cannon. He's doing nine and a half minute miles, 9.20s, 9.10s. We've got police escorts in front, police escorts in back. Shout out to the police department, the state troopers who helped us through the entire uh, marathon course. But there was a sweeper motorcycle, a guy named John, a state trooper. And I was behind the pack because all these other runners with him were all with him. They were able to run nine and a half minute miles. And then there was me and I was not able to keep up. So I'm falling behind, but I catch up when they stop at a water station, and instead of stopping, I just blow through it, trying to get a lead, and then all of a sudden, I hear a pack of runners attacking me like a lion gets to a hyena, and they pass me. And so I'm going back and forth, my heart rate's too high, my legs are hurting, I get to mile six, and I say, I I can't keep up, and I've got a state trooper who's falling off his motorcycle, Coca because he's going so slowly because I'm going so slowly and he has to stay behind me in order to make sure I don't get run over. So I decide at mile 6.9, done. I'm getting in the crew van. So I throw my water bottle down in anger and frustration and disappointment. Everybody else keeps going. McGillivray doesn't say a word to me. Nobody says anything, they all keep going. I get in the van for several for four miles and I say, you know what? And I ate a little bit, had a little drink, not alcohol. And I said, all right, I I can't do this. I, I have to try to run more. But the problem is I had already lost the moon. The moon is that you get to cross the finish line. And when you run with Dave, you get a medal as though you ran the Boston Marathon because you have run the Boston Marathon, but it's not an official result, but you still get the medal and you get to say you ran the Boston Marathon. And I knew that I would not take the medal, which brought me to an interesting point mentally. Can you run 25 miles out of 26.2, but take the medal at the end? What about if you only run 18 miles? What was the decision to be made? And for me, it was very quick. There's no way that I was taking a medal. I was not completing a marathon. And there's no way I would say I ran the marathon. There's no way I'd say I completed it. There's no way I was going to wear a medal. There's no way I was going to limp. There's no way when anyone asked me, hey, are you? did you just run the marathon when I got on a 5, 10 a.m. train? I was going to say I ran but did not complete the marathon. So that was already in my head. So I start running again at mile, whatever, 11. And I'm able to pretty much almost keep up because he had slowed down a little bit. And I took the time to run a segment with my brother-in-law and I ran a segment with Dave McGilvery. I ran Heartbreak Hill, just me and Dave, in front of the pack, Heartbreak Hill, for that 1.1 mile. And we were talking about our life and talking about running. Meanwhile, his kids are running. Luke, who's a superstar runner, ran the first eight and the last eight of the of this marathon and he's going to end up being a a just a, a celebrity runner so we get toward the finish line five hours later and there was a celebration for dave we formed a tunnel and he crossed the finish line they had a tape up it was the lead story of the news there were cameras everywhere to celebrate dave mcgilvery doing his 50th marathon and the race director doing it and i felt horrible And the reason I felt horrible is I had run 22 miles. I didn't get a marathon medal because I didn't complete 26.2. And I felt horrible because I felt like a failure. And so I spoke to Dave a little bit after the run. And I told him what had happened because he was in the zone and doing his own thing. And he said to me, you know what, David? I've learned long ago that if you punish your body and your mind at the same time, It is a guarantee that you will fail and that you will have setbacks in ways that you never contemplated. And I said, it's funny you say that because when people ask me how I do endurance events, I tell them that my mind and my body never quit at the same time, that when my mind quits, my body just knows to keep going from muscle memory. When my body quits, my mind says, legs, you keep going one step at a time. Every step is closer to that finish line. And yesterday, my mind and my body quit for the first time in my career that started in 1996 with the first New York Marathon. And I was thinking about why it happened. And the reason it happened is I took it for granted. I thought that I could just roll out of bed with no permission from the doctor, no training, and run a marathon like the Boston Marathon, which is one of the hardest courses in the world so why would i accept mental failure and i realized the reason that i thought i was a failure is that i've never not completed something that i started out to complete i don't quit and in this instance i quit there have been many times i've wanted to quit doing the antelope canyon ultra marathon i was crying the iron man i was crying i'm done After the bike, 112-mile bike, after a 2.4-mile swim, I was crying saying, I can't run a marathon right now. Normally, I have five days of rest before I run a marathon, and I've had pasta, and I'm ready to go. Now, I just have been on a course for 10 hours. There's no way, but I just kept going. But I didn't yesterday, and I've been torturing myself ever since, torturing myself to the point that I didn't sleep last night. I could not sleep, and I woke up, had an alarm for 4.15 to get on a 5.10 train to come back and do a show. And I ended up falling asleep. The last time I looked at the clock, cause I was on my phone and I was reading articles and doing things was 3.48. And I think I tweeted that Coca. So then I, of course, like kids do when they're on a long car ride and they're a pain in your neck and then they fall asleep when you're two blocks from your destination and you can't believe it. You're like, do I drive around the block? Like, what do I do? Do I want my kid to sleep? But now we got to go to the dinner where we're supposed to go. It's just how you're, how it works. So I've been engaged since 4.15 this morning. So it's been about seven hours and I'm not going easy on myself at all. And I'm not saying that I'm not asking for sympathy, believe me, I'm not. My back hurts, my quads hurt. I ran, ended up running 22 miles because I got out of the van and then I ran the rest of the marathon. Here's the lesson. If you know that your body can't do it, you cannot let your mind fail you. And you gotta practice that. I actually practice with my mind. I'll put myself in a position where I don't think I can do something and I make myself do it. Whether it's related to nothing personal, whether it's related to something with Levitard, I'll say, I don't think that I can do this segment, I don't think I'm ready to do this, and I'll play mind tricks in order to train my mind where I can accomplish things that I don't think I'm able to do. I train my body so I can accomplish physical things that normally people wouldn't be able to do only for not willing to try. So I'm telling you all in a moment of weakness right now that I am disappointed in myself in a way that I have never had to express because I've never had it happen. And now I have this opportunity to vent and to talk to you about it and to see if you can understand or appreciate what this feels like and know that you just have to keep going. So one of the things that I'll say to people on direct message when they talk about the show or that they like the show or they engage with the show every day for 45 minutes, I say, let's keep going. We might as well keep going. And I live by that. And yesterday for four miles, I did not keep going. Anyway, shout out to Dave, his wife, Katie, Luke, Ellie, Chloe, his two other kids, Max. It's just a great family. Dave, congratulations, we all love you. We cannot believe what you do every single day. All right, when we come back, we are going to review something that I told you we'd review. And then we're going to talk about Trevor Bauer. Because you thought we'd heard the last of Trevor Bauer? Listen, this is full Karen Carpenter. We've only just begun. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Listen to the start of the show, you'll know why. Thank you for making it through the gauntlet, the gauntlet of commercials that don't pay Coca's salary. I watched a documentary earlier this weekend, although it's not the weekend anymore. Today is Tuesday, April 19th. Thank you, Coca. And it feels like Monday to me. What about that Costa sit down yesterday? I hope you all watched that and enjoyed that. That was a pretty cool moment. I mean, I've known Bob for a long time, but to be able to sit and just talk to him, we we wanted to go another hour and a half at least because we just had so many things we didn't get to. At the end, he said to me and Coca, hey, let's let some time pass to make sure your audience isn't sick of my voice, and let's do another one. I said, all right, let's let some time pass. And then one second later, I said, okay, you ready for another 45 minutes? (laughs) And he laughed. So I tweeted out that I watched this documentary called Jimmy Seville, A British Horror Story. This is on... Netflix I think I'd never heard of Jimmy Savile Jimmy Savile is a monster Jimmy Savile makes Bill Cosby look like he didn't do anything wrong Jimmy Savile had everyone in Britain from the royal family down to the most common of the commoner believing that he was nothing but a TV star a disc jockey a clown, if you will, a man of the people. He was one of, if not the most beloved British people ever. But there was something going on. And what was going on is that all of the charity work that he was doing, and he did a lot of charity work. He tried to take care of kids who were disabled, tried to take care of kids who were disadvantaged, kids who needed a break, guess what? It wasn't just money that he was giving. He was taking to. He was sexually assaulting and abusing kids from 1955 all the way up until the end. And no one would say anything. The girls, and maybe boys, who got abused, who got literally rapes they felt the way these grown women felt with bill cosby how can i say something who's gonna believe me that the jello brand pig hoofed gelatin man is calling me into his cosby show dressing room to have his way with me while giving me a roofie who's ever gonna buy that Jimmy Savile was even a greater public figure, more beloved than Bill Cosby. So when a kid, just remember like with the gymnasts, when they don't realize that a team doctor probably shouldn't be putting his hands down her pants, but they don't know to say anything because they think, is this normal? Is this how it works? Is this what's required to be an Olympic gymnast? It got me so worked up watching this movie, this documentary because that is the worst kind of monster. The monster who dresses like a monster, the monster who everyone knows is coming from 10 miles away, is that a monster or is that just someone who's showing you his or her stripes and it's caveat emptor? Or is the worst kind of monster, it's degrees of worseness, someone who makes you believe that they are nothing but kind they draw you into their home they draw you in to their room they draw you in and then they take advantage of you and then set you free knowing that you will never say a word because no one would ever believe what you said and i realize that that's a much worse monster the reason why you should watch jimmy seville is that it will give you we we reviewed a documentary called We Gotta Talk About Cosby. I asked you to watch that. I want you to watch this one too. And the reason is that you're gonna feel uncomfortable. You're gonna get angry. And I hope what the anger does is it helps us spot monsters who are wearing sheep's clothing. It's a mixed metaphor, but it's one that matters in this case. Because those are the people we need to really watch out for. And if you see something, you gotta say something so trevor bauer is on administrative leave if you're a fan of nothing personal and you've been listening but if you're new to nothing Personal, you don't know you can go back in the archives we've done quite a few things on trevor bauer trevor bauer is the guy who had rough what he calls consensual sex the woman said it wasn't consensual he choked her out and then he was doing stuff to her in various places he said it was consensual we both like it rough we both agreed that we were going to do it this way i am innocent and then when he was not criminally charged he came forward again to say look i'm now innocent when the temporary restraining order against him was lifted he said look i'm not a threat i'm innocent meanwhile he has been on administrative leave for almost a year now what was it in july of 21 that that this came out and he was immediately placed on administrative leave what's the day coca somewhere in july is my guess I'm going to say, just just for fun, I'll say July 9th. And uh, administrative leave means that your team has to pay you every two weeks, but you can't play. Administrative leave is based on the commissioner saying, we are going to do an investigation, and then we are going to decide whether or not you ought to be punished. And a punish can be a fine, it can be a suspension, or it can be nothing. But administrative leave is sort of purgatory because... Not only are you getting paid, but also you're not playing. So for a team, it was July 2nd. Thank you, Coco. Off by a week. So for a team like the Dodgers, they've been paying Bauer $30 million a year for this year at the rate of $30 million a year every two weeks, and he hasn't pitched. The irony is the Dodgers don't want him to pitch. They don't want him to be in their clubhouse again. They are done with Trevor Bauer. They should have been done before they signed him they should have had a clue when he disrespected terry francona uh trevor bauer is one of the great examples of the juice not being worth the squeeze but baseball is in a pickle right now the commissioner extended the administrative leave with agreement by the union because you have to agree both sides to place a player on extended administrative leave The first 10 days are on the House. After that, it has to be by agreement. The union has 1,199 members who want Trevor Bauer to disappear, and one member who says, hey, why aren't you representing me? This is ridiculous. Why don't we have a decision from Rob? The commissioner. He's already suspended people from Marcelo Zuna to Aroldis Chapman. There's numerous people who have been suspended under this sort of rule that baseball has that— If there is abuse or any sort of behavior that is not becoming of a professional baseball player, you are subject to discipline. And what that discipline is, is for the commissioner to decide. But here's a little nugget that has never once come up in the years this has been going on. The player who has been suspended by baseball in every instance has agreed to the suspension which means the player has not appealed the suspension, which is the player's right to do under the collective bargaining agreement, where there would be a third party arbitrator, not like arbitration for salary where there's three arbitrators on a panel. This is in front of one person and that one person would decide whether or not the suspension was warranted, whether or not it should be shorter, can't make it longer. They can leave it the same, they can make it shorter or they can get rid of it altogether. But not one time has a player availed himself of this opportunity because there has been full agreement the entire time in each case. The reason why MLB has not announced a Trevor Bauer suspension, which I promised you is coming, and I wait, did a wait to see that he will go from administrative leave right to suspension, and I have another wait to see, I'm sure that he will never wear a Dodgers uniform again. But the reason why baseball has not been able to announce the suspension is that when they approach Trevor Bauer, Trevor Bauer said, I will not accept a one-game suspension. Forget a year or two years or a month or 20 games. Zero is my number. Rob Manford knows very well he can't suspend him for zero games. It's out of the question. Marcelo Zuna got suspended for 20 games. Was seen choking his wife. Domestic. Violence, charged with a felony, but ended up being uh, pled out. He got 20 games, but got time served, meaning he could come back and start this season playing for the Braves again, but he lost 20 games worth of pay from last year because he was on administrative leave and gets paid, as I said, while you're on administrative leave. But Bauer will not agree. What Bauer is saying is that he is going to appeal whatever the commissioner says. That means it's going to go to arbitration because Bauer's not gonna settle, which means there's gonna be a hearing, there's gonna be testimony. It means the commissioner will have to explain why he made the decision he made. He'll have to justify why he made the decision, present evidence from the Department of Investigations within Major League Baseball as to why he made the decision he made. Trevor Bauer will be able to present evidence to the arbitrator that it was purely consensual. He'll be able to show text messages. He'll be able to show that this woman contacted him and wanted to have sex anyway it's gonna be a sideshow and the dodgers are very interested third parties because when it comes to their competitive balance tax their luxury tax threshold payroll that whole steve Cohn level if you get to 290 or above you pay 80 percent if you're above 230 million you pay 20 percent it goes up and up and up If Trevor Bauer is suspended for any part of this year, his salary doesn't count toward the competitive balance tax. So the Dodgers are asking Rob to suspend him for two years because that would cover the balance of Trevor Bauer's contract with the Dodgers. Rob Manford is not going to suspend him for two years. My guess is Rob Manford, Coca. I got to wait to see for you. So book this. The Trevor Bauer suspension will be greater than 120 games and less than 200 games. It will fall between 120 and 200. Then there will be an arbitration, and once we see what's being presented i'll give a way to see where the arbitrator comes but for now the way to see is trevor bauer will be suspended by baseball for between 120 and 200 games and the interesting thing is that now baseball will use a suspension that they can justify because they know it's going to be appealed and it's a nightmare for baseball it is Fine for the Dodgers, but they want resolution so they know where their payroll is going to be so they can add at the deadline. One of the reasons why they didn't sign Kenley Jansen, by the way, who went to the Braves, is they didn't know where their actual payroll was going to be because of Trevor Bauer. So it's impacted several teams already. Dodgers, Braves, etc. So Trevor Bauer is going to use his social media. He's going to use his YouTube channel. And he is going to try to make you believe That he did nothing wrong. Don't buy it. All right. We haven't had a pick of the day since the weekend. We went one and two, Coca. 46 and 38. On Friday, we had the Blue Jays over the A's. Because they had to win that game. And they did. Saturday, I had the Grizzlies. Minus seven over the Wolves. How did that go? I'm trying to remember. Oh, yeah. The Wolves won the game. Okay. That's a loss. Sunday. Celtics Nets. Did you watch that game? So... When a basketball game ends on a last second layup, it's sort of surprising, right? It could be a breakaway when you're down one and you lay it in and you make sure you lay it in in time and then you win by one. But this was a missed shot, a rebound, a pass, all with three seconds left. And Tatum O'Neal got the ball and laid it up as time expired and the Celtics beat the Nets but did not cover. That's a loss so tonight we're back to nba action there's no way i'm going against john morant he's not going down 0-2 to the t wolves not when you're one of the top five players in basketball you're not grizzlies are again favored by a touchdown they will comfortably tie this series at one we'll watch it you should watch it that's the pick of the day okay i want to uh clarify something from friday's show i've told you several times how this works i do this without a prompter i've got a document in front of me that has topics i have coca in my ear and on the document we prepare for the show the night before the morning of the show but sometimes during a show my mind goes in different places i have detours sometimes i say things about a topic that i hadn't thought of when i was prepping for the show and it's just sort of a stream of consciousness based on my experience based on my research and there are times i make a mistake and I then acknowledge it because that's what you're supposed to do. Most of the gas bags don't, but I always do. That's the same with wait to see is why I tell you when I got one right or wrong because I want to revisit it. I did a segment on the third base coach for the San Diego Padres on Friday and the first base coach for the San Francisco Giants where there was a problem where the bunt, the team up by 10 runs, bunted. Bunted trying to score more runs. And the Padres were upset about it. And Mike Schilt, the erstwhile manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, looked into the dugout and said to Richardson, or said to, something may have said to Gabe Kapler, said, you got to control that mf And I did a segment saying that I did not agree with Richardson going public saying that Schilt was doing something racist because I said, what's racist about MFR? It's ridiculous. And then they had a conversation the next day, and Richardson said, yeah, of course Schilt's not a racist. I was wrong. They had a kumbaya, but yet the headline was Mike Schilt racist. After a lifetime of not being a racist, all of a sudden he was a racist. And so that bothered me. And people commented to me on Twitter or in various other places where they can reach me and said it wasn't the mf word that caused Richardson to think that Schultz was a racist. It was Schultz saying, you got to control that person. And that is a triggering word. And as you know, if you're watching, I'm white. If you're listening, you can watch on Nothing Personal with David Sampson YouTube channel. I can't walk in the shoes of a minority an african-american i can't tell you about the experience i can't do anything i can't tell you what triggers i can't i can only respond and acknowledge and grow and be better so to me the word control was not the dominant word in that statement it was mfr that i thought was upsetting him and i hear that on the field every day but the word control is a trigger so thank you for pointing that out to me i correct why richardson felt that way What I don't change, and this is not a double down, this is just a fact, what I'm not changing is that I would have preferred Richardson to have approached Schilt and spoken prior to going public. Figure out if you are dealing with someone who's racist, figure out before you go public and then have to qualify what you said the next day. So thank you for that clarification. Okay. Wait to see is when we tell you something's gonna happen. We had a wait to see about the Atlanta Hawks and I wanted to talk for a few moments about the Hawks and the heat and about sports and a topic that interests me. We have to go through the public financing, COCA, but in the remaining five minutes, it's a much longer topic and I agree with you, we're gonna hold off but we are guaranteeing it. I'm not just teasing it for tomorrow. Um, I don't care what happens. Even if we have to go an hour on tomorrow's show, we will be discussing what's going on with public financing. If you have a chance to watch the Billy Corbin mini documentary that he put out, he put out a a two-and-a-half-minute video about a public financing deal going on in Miami for the Inter-Miami soccer team. You may want to check that out prior to our conversation tomorrow. You may want to see see or read what's happening in Oakland and in Buffalo and in Baltimore and in Carolina and can I go on and on and on. Public financing is a real thing that is really happening, still happening, and we're going to have a full conversation about it. But I wanted to talk about the Hawks and Heat. The Miami Heat are a team built by Pat Riley, where many of you may not be able to name many members of the team, maybe just Jimmy Butler, maybe you think of Dwayne Wade or Shaquille O'Neal, or maybe you're thinking about LeBron James or Chris Bosh and the big three, Pat Riley may be the star of that team. If you're watching Winning Time, you know where Riley started. Miami Heat were the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. They were the best team over 82 games in the entire Eastern Conference, number one. And yet everybody was saying they are not a worthy number one seed. They're not even favored to win the Eastern Conference, totally being disrespected by all national media by all the talking heads and all the writers saying the heat are doing it with smoke and mirrors so what's interesting to me is that in baseball no one ever says a team is doing it with smoke and mirrors because everyone's view is over 162 games the cream has to rise to the top you can't be a bad team and win 91 or 95 games you have to be a good team that can have losing streaks you can lose six or seven in a row when the marlins won 91 games we had a seven game losing streak and then followed it with a seven game winning streak or something like that so those things will happen during the course of a long season but the six months in the 162 games and the reason why owners are reticent to shorten the season is that at the end of 162 you generally get rewarded for building a good team in basketball there are only 82 games but it's the same exact thing. People have been trying to convince me for a decade, more, multiple decades, that in basketball, you can have a team only be okay and they can get themselves to the playoffs and get through the playoffs. My view on that is horse hockey. Basketball for 82 equals baseball for 162. You cannot be a bad team and be the number one seed. It doesn't work like that. You may not have superstars. You may not have a big three, but you're still the best team in the conference. Hard stop. So the Heat started their playoff series against the Hawks, who we told you in a wait to see would make it out of the play in tourney, and they did. They had to win two games, they won two because Trey Young is Trey Young but now they're playing a much better team and the Heat crushed them in game one. And what's making me insane is all of the bandwagon people, not just in Miami, I'm talking about all over the country who are looking at the Heat and saying, whoa, are they they good now? They've been good from the beginning. You just didn't know it because there's no flair, there's no sex appeal. The Miami Heat are the best team in the Eastern Conference. Now you're gonna say the Nets are better, the Celtics are better, they're hotter. This is what about the Sixers? Maybe they're the fourth best team in the Eastern Conference. At best, what about the Raptors? Negative. How about giving credit where credit's due? We'll see how the playoffs unravel. The Heat are on an off day today. But I'll tell you, it's gonna be a gentleman sweep between the Heat and the Hawks. That's a five game series, not a four, a four game. I guess it's not gentlemanly to not let the other team win a game. But take a look at the Heat if you can. Well, I appreciate that you were with me today. Make sure you're with me tomorrow because we will cover public financing. This time, I really mean it. I'm back. I'm about to go take a very, very cold bath. It's just business. This is nothing personal. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently